me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Remember, just because you're doing a lot more doesn't mean you're getting a lot more done. Don't confuse movement with progress. We live in a paradoxical time where we have more comfort but less peace, more connectivity but less connection, more information but less wisdom. The purpose of this podcast is to explore these natural tensions with independent voices who will push our thinking. This is the Paradox Podcast. So it took me getting good enough at it to know how good at it I was not. It took me getting just good enough at it to know I'm not good at it at all. You can learn quite a lot from experience. That's one thing. There's something after that. Have you the will and determination to do anything about it? Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Paradox Podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Tibbetts. For episode number 17, I chatted with Lex Euler, founder and CEO of Peachy, about how a hospital bill that bankrupted her family set her on a mission to fix the broken medical billing system, following her own path away from law school to become a product designer, leveraging Twitter to find early employees, customers, and investors, and her nonlinear journey to becoming a founder. Full disclosure, my fund Paradox Capital is an investor in Lux's company. And after you listen to this conversation, I think you'll understand why it was an easy decision for me. $45 billion of medical debt is currently in collections, and Peachy is building an entirely new platform that puts patients at the center and helps doctors get paid faster. This was a fun and informative discussion and got me excited to interview more founders on the podcast moving forward. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Lex Euler. Before we jump into today's episode, are you a founder of a startup? Do you need funding for your startup? The good news is I've launched a seed fund called Paradox Capital. The mission is to arm founders beneath and beyond Silicon Valley's radar with early checks and expert advice to build the next great companies anywhere. If you're an early stage founder, reach out to me at paradox.vc or send me a DM on Twitter and let's chat. Now let's get back to the episode. Lex, thanks for taking the time to join me on the Paradox podcast. It's cool because you're the first founder that I've ever invested in that's been on the podcast. So that's extremely unique. And, And I guess my first question for you, this last year obviously has been strange for all of us. And it's a really interesting time to choose to start a company. Why did you decide to start a company now of all times? Yeah, I did not think it was the right time. And it was, I mean, it was by accident. I i tweeted something in November and by December I had a company. It was like, not what I wanted to do. It was not really on my roadmap. It was something I had talked about very briefly, like one conversation back in July with one person and hadn't really like pulled anything together from there. But yeah, I just, I tweeted about a medical bill that had went to collections and that finally falling off my credit report. And from there, it was all of a sudden like investors were reaching out. And then I was telling them I wasn't fundraising because I didn't have a company and I like had no idea what I was doing. And one night I got on a call with Dayton Mills, who's the CEO of Branch. He's like 21. And he was just like, I will Venmo you $1,000 right now to incorporate. And I was like, that's not what's holding me back. And he was like, <laughs> I will do it and I will help you and you can figure this out. And by the next day, I was incorporated. That's amazing. I know we'll talk more about the founding story and the origin story of the company. I know that also your company, Peachy, is announcing a fundraise. This episode's coinciding with the announcement of your raise. Can you talk a little bit about raising money in the middle of a pandemic? Yeah. I mean, in a lot of ways, I feel like I was lucky that I didn't know much about the fundraising world because it didn't seem like different. It wasn't like a different experience for me. It's my only experience is during it, like during a pandemic. I think what was really interesting about it was I did it while I had a full-time job. I had lightly told my boss I was thinking about leaving. Like I was like, I might go start this company. And he was like, come back after Christmas break and let me know what you decide. And I gave myself two weeks. I had like a week and a half off from work. And then like I took three vacation days before that. And I was like, if I can raise this round in this two weeks over Christmas, 
I will leave my job and pursue this. And that's what I did. Everyone told me you're going to get 40 no's before your first yes. I had seven yeses before my first no. Wow. Um, And also everyone tells you that you should raise a friends and family round first. And I was like, no, nobody in my family is an accredited investor. Like I'm starting a company because my parents bankrupted themselves over medical bills. Like we, that doesn't apply here. And so I started looking at like crowdfunding stuff, which, you know, as we're recording, that got super popular yesterday. But I, I would like to say I did it before it was very. You cool. did. You, you were a little earlier than Sawhill in the Gumroad fund. I, I Maybe was. not as much notoriety, but yes, you were definitely <laughs> earlier on that trend. I was. And so I was like, I'm just going to open this up. I think we had set the goal at like $20,000 or something. And we raised, um, I don't know, almost $200,000. Wow. And there wasn't much work that went into it either. I didn't run ads to it. I didn't like prep anyone for it. They tell you to like record these videos of yourself talking about it. I didn't do any of that. But you know, when you have a product that people really need, I think it's raising money is easy. I also kept things like very simple. We're solving a really complex problem, but I was able to explain it in a way that was like simple enough. People just understood it immediately. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll get back to Peachy and the product and how I ended up investing in the company and crowdfunding and accredited investors in a little bit. But I'd love to give the audience just a little bit of backstory and insight into who you are as a person. Could you share a story from your childhood or or earlier on in your life that just strongly influenced who you are today? Yeah, there's so many of them. And I don't want to like give away the founding story of the business yet. I would say it's probably one of the more influential things. But you know, starting this company, I have gotten a lot closer with my stepdad than I have since I was young. We were very close. He raised me from three years old on, and I didn't know my real dad until I was 16. And so this has just been like a really cool experience of like, I like sent him my investor update and he like responded and was like, awesome. And he like calls and checks in and stuff. But a lot of that has brought me back to like my childhood and what that relationship really did for me. And part of the founding story or not, not necessarily, but like during the recession, my stepdad lost his job. And I remember being mortified. I was in high school and he took a job at Walmart stocking shelves over Christmas. And I was mortified. And my sisters were too. They're younger than me. And we just like could not believe that this was happening. And I just remember him looking at us and being like, do you guys want Christmas this year or not? Like, this is just what we do. Like, Mm. you know, you just do, you just do things. Like you just take the next step forward. And yeah, I don't know. I would say that that's probably like the most influential story from my childhood because I like, I'm a proponent of free work. And like, you know, I started this company while working another job and I got into design after dropping out of college and getting a job as a receptionist at a salon and begging like every client to let me do free design work for them. And it was just Mm. like, you you know, I was taught that you like build your destiny here. And then my real dad got sober when I was 16. And like, now he's a therapist with a master's degree and like he was a heroin junkie who was homeless in Los Angeles. So like, you know, our family just puts one foot in front of the other. And I'm like really happy that was instilled in me from like a super young age, even when it doesn't look like glamorous. Yeah, those are amazing stories. I think that what your stepfather was exhibiting in that moment, and I remember 2008, 2009 and the recession. And I think for our generation, that was a very formative experience. People like to bash on millennials for being soft, but between, you know, 9-11 and the wars and Great Recession, you know, those weren't easy times to grow up and and you know graduate college and all those things. But really he was he was exhibiting resilience. And if I think about one of the most important traits that founders have, in my opinion, that are successful is they have that resilience. It's that, like you said, that one foot in front of the other. And it's not always going to be linear. If you zoom in on a chart, right, it might look, if you zoom out, it's up and to the right. But if you zoom in, it's this crazy roller coaster of ups and downs. And I think being a founder is probably simultaneously very lonely, even though you're surrounded by people. And also it's just every day is a lot of highs and lows. And so having that sort of resilience, you know, modeled at a younger age, I'm sure was very influential, both with your stepdad and with your dad, which are both incredible stories. Shifting gears a little bit, what's it like being a founder in LA? I'm up in the Bay Area still. I haven't left for Miami or Austin. I don't plan to. And I'm bullish on the LA scene because I'd like to see California remain relevant as an epicenter of innovation and technology. But what's it like being a founder down in LA? 
So I moved back to LA last year in the summer. I'd been in Seattle for seven years before that. And it's not my first time living in LA. I moved out here the first time when I was 18 for a summer to get to know my dad and then came back for a little bit a couple of years later and then moved up to Seattle. But kind of in the same way, I didn't know anything about fundraising outside of pandemic life. Like I don't really know what it's like being a founder in LA. It feels the same as if I was a founder anywhere. I mostly don't leave my house or my office. I don't know. It's welcoming. Like LA is like a super friendly place and not just like with other founders and people in the tech scene, but I love being able to go to a coffee shop where people know my name and have acknowledged me from like the second week going there. And so that is something I don't see in a lot of other cities and people who don't like LA will tell you like, it's all fake and everyone's trying to get ahead. But I just, I don't have that experience here at all. I also have like super bad seasonal depression. And I just was thinking about it the other day. Like that just didn't hit me this year. Like normally by February, I'm like in my psychiatrist's office being like, I know that antidepressants don't ever seem to work for me, but like, should we try them again? But, <laughs> but like this year, like not, not once there's like no, no hint of depression at all. I, I love being in the sun and um, oh, yeah. we also just have a ton of space, like compared to other places. I mean, I wouldn't want to move to the Bay area because I can't sacrifice my space. Oh, totally. Yeah. I, it's funny. Cause I'm originally from Southern California. I grew up North of Los Angeles, but was born in LA County, but I've been up in the Bay area now for 15 or 16 years. I'm dating myself a little bit. I have definitely a mild case of the seasonality depression disorder. I could never move to Seattle. Like that would be a complete deal breaker from like a a mood and happiness standpoint. But it's true. LA has kind of got more space. And I think that since the tech scene is a little bit smaller, you know, the folks that are there are really, really excited about other folks that are there building companies, right? I've co-invested with investors down in LA and I've met lots of founders in LA. And there's something exciting about these emerging hubs, LA certainly being one, has been one for a while, Austin and Miami and, and others is like, you're kind of back on the frontier and it's less really about you're building companies in the cloud anyway. So where you are maybe doesn't matter. I think you're kind of alluding to that a little bit in your answer, but it does matter because where you're living matters, right? I think Miami's got this really great tagline. It's like build in the cloud, live in the sun. And LA could just as easily have that same tagline. So it's fascinating to see, hopefully what's happening here is location and opportunity are kind of being decoupled where you can build a company or join a great company or forget tech, like learn a great skill. As long as you have internet access, you can ideally do that anywhere. And it'll be exciting to see, even though I'm still in the Bay Area, it'll be exciting to see hubs outside of the Bay Area really take off. I think it's good for the ecosystem and spreads the wealth in a very positive way. I do like that there is like enough of a tech scene here though, that like people can come over. I love Chicago so much. It's my favorite city and I would sacrifice seasonal affective disorder for it. But like, <laughs> it's it's not the same. Like in LA, at least I have investors here. I have customers here. I have teammates here and I can just be like, hey, what are you doing? You want to like get coffee? And then yeah. we're just there and then they come over. And other cities I feel like don't have that quite yet. I guess Miami seems to. They just go to Barry's and find a co-founder. That's right. And my, Miami, they're just like, sh- through sheer will, they're just like forcing it into existence, which I kind of respect. It's like that startup that just will not quit. And, it you doesn't know, seem San- like any of them work, though. I'm like, it seems like you well, guys How could you? In Miami, there's so much the fun to be had. I know. It's the beach. It's Barry's. It's, it's the whole thing. I know you already touched on this at the beginning. Can you dive a little more into the origin story of Peachy? Yeah. And- I know there's a little more there and I'm excited to to hear the story again. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I think the like first time this stuff was put on my radar as a thing, when I was in high school, I spent six weeks in the hospital, a little bit more than six weeks. And my parents' insurance ended up not covering it. And at that point, like my family had been upper middle class, like very comfortable, didn't like want or need for anything. Like we weren't wealthy by any means, but had good insurance. My parents had good jobs. My mom's a hairdresser and my stepdad had worked at the same scaffolding company since I met him at three. And my parents' insurance didn't cover this hospital stay over some loophole. And they refinanced their house to pay for it, which they didn't think was going to be a big deal. It was just like, we're going to refinance our home, not have to deal with this medical debt, blah, blah, blah. And then the recession hit in 2008, 2009, and my stepdad lost his job. And like that six week hospital stay ended up turning my parents into filing for bankruptcy. And I just like, didn't, I didn't understand. It was like everything I thought I knew about bankruptcy. And like, I was 
smart. Like I like, won't be like shy about that. I was an incredibly smart teenager and I still couldn't wrap my head around it. I was like, wait, but you guys don't have massive credit card debt and we live within our means and you drive used cars and like, we make good financial decisions. What do you mean you're filing for bankruptcy? Right. You know, I started to see this is, this is something that happens to like good, hardworking people too. Not that I think that you have to be good or hardworking to not bankrupt yourself over medical bills, but like it, it affects people across the spectrum. And, you know, when you look at like, they were literally just trying to save their kid's life to go from that to bankruptcy is like very scary. And, and for me, what that looked like was being terrified of going to the doctor. Like even Mm. when I had money, even when I had good insurance, I was just like, you know, you never know what's going to happen. And, you know, then the generational impact of, you know, both that on the like physical health side, like if people stop going to the doctor because they're afraid of medical bills that has like very high cost outcomes. But also, you know, my parents couldn't co-sign on an apartment for me in college and they couldn't co-sign on my sister's student loans. Like I had an academic scholarship, but she didn't. And seeing the opportunities that start to get smaller because of one tiny thing that was completely outside of your control. And then I got older and I had my son. And, you know, so my kid's dad had started a new job the week before our son was born. Same company, different job, insurance changed. All of these medical bills came and they were like, no, 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 don't worry about them. Like your insurance is going to take care of it. It's it's fine. Like just give it a second to catch up. And then ended up sending what we did owe. And, you know, I paid a ton of bills. And then this $44 bill didn't get paid. It was just, you know, one of those things that like maybe the bill came, maybe it, it was probably come. for like a blanket. I remember going through this with my daughter. It was like, you know, the blanket that they swallow your kid in. It's like $44. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they're like, well, that's out of network. So like insurance didn't cover it. And we like forgot yeah. to bill you for it. And totally. so this $44 bill goes to collections and I'm like, I call, I pay it. And that's in 2017. And I don't really think about it again. And I, you know, I'm a millennial, so I care about my credit. I keep an eye on it. I'm like, this thing is not disappearing, but it was for $44. And I was like, I don't know, it'll take care of itself eventually. And I paid it. So whatever. And I had lived in the same place for like six years. And so last summer was when I was moving. It was middle of the pandemic. And I was like, I cannot stay in Seattle for this. This pandemic's not ending anytime soon. Like we need more space. And I was like, I have this thing in collections. Like I have to handle this. And so I got on Credit Karma, I found the phone number and I called them and they were like, we don't own this debt. Like you need to call these people. And I'm like, okay, I call those people. And those people were like, oh, we sold that to these people. And seven people later, I ended up back on the phone with the first person I talked to an entire day gone. And he was like, okay, I'll submit it for a courtesy removal. Clearly you've tried. And also I have my credit card in front of me. Like I'm like offering to pay this. Yeah. You're like, I'm trying to give you money. Can you make it easier for me to give you money? (laughs) Yeah. It was, it was such a nightmare. And that day I was talking to a friend and was like, you know, if this had just come as a text to my phone and I could have just paid this from my phone and like, blah, blah, blah. And he was like, this happens to me all the time. And he was a real estate investor and, you know, huge penthouse, like elevator in his unit. And I'm like, what do you mean it happens to you all the time? And he was like, my wife has cancer and we sometimes Mm. travel for six months at a time for treatment. By the time we get home, stuff's been sent to collection agencies. And I've been through that process. And like, quite frankly, I don't have enough time with my wife left to deal with this. Yeah. And he offered me $50,000. He's like, I'll give you $50,000 to go solve this. And I was like... I can't like, it's not, it's not a good time. And I, I remember saying someone else would have done this by now if it was possible. It felt too obvious. And I kept thinking about it. That was in July of 2020. Kept thinking about it. I'd like, you know, kind of start pulling together how I thought we could solve it, but like really didn't put a ton of energy into it. I was working full time and probably working more than full time. And in November of 2020, I think it was November 23rd, I tweeted about that $44 bill finally falling off of my credit report. So he submitted it for a courtesy removal in July and it still didn't come off until November. And it just took off. It just took off from there. Investors started reaching out and everyone said like, you know, you'll never get distribution. That was the thing. Like providers are a very slow sales cycle and right. like, you'll never figure this out. And then we did. And and then, mm. you know, Brave Care reached out and they were, you know, Darius came on as an investor and was like, you know, we want to use this. And then Carbon Health was like, we could use this. And then like, you know, now other people have reached out and it's like, you know, it tells itself. Like yeah. providers, you, you effectively to get paid. had distribution before you had the product. I mean, you were we building did. the product to meet the demand that was already lining up at the door. 
Yeah, we did. I mean, I think TransUnion had estimated that 95% of patient responsibility medical bills would go unpaid by the end of 2020. And so it was like, you know, with high deductible plans being the norm, providers have to get paid. And if the patient's not paying it, they're not making money. Like, you know, and and patients want to pay it. The process to pay is too hard and they don't know the bills exist. And so yeah, it was, you know, it's like B2B to B to C and everybody wants in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think like your story kind of hits on this. The fact that I think everyone has experienced how awful the medical billing system is. I think from every walk of life, every socioeconomic status possible. I remember like in 2011, so I was in my very early 20s, I had like a medical bill. I think I just moved from Berkeley to Alameda or something like that. Something got lost in the mail. You know, this was the earlier days of mobile. I didn't pay it right away because I didn't, I never received the bill. And then it was on my credit report for like seven years, literally until like 2018 or something like that. I think wow. it was on my credit report, you know? And, and and I think even now, right? It's like I have a three-year-old, I have a wife, we're busy. There's little tiny like $20 copay things that you think you've paid. And then it's like, they just don't make it easy to pay. Like I'm trying to pay this stuff over my phone and none of this stuff is optimized for a human. I don't even know who it's optimized (laughs) for, but what do you think keeps it from being fixed? I know that Peachy is on a mission to fix it uh, and I'm super bullish on the approach you're taking to fix it, but what has kept it from getting fixed all these years, all these decades? Yeah. So, I mean, it definitely goes into why people thought we wouldn't get distribution if they were like, you know, providers don't care about this. I was like, no, they do. But for a long time, they didn't. So up until about 2014, when high deductible plans became the norm, the patient responsibility portion made up such a small amount of revenue for providers that they really only optimized on the insurance side of things. It wasn't meaningful for them to try to like chase these bills down. They would just send that paper bill and, you know, that's just enough to meet compliance. And then they'd sell it to a collection agency for three to five cents on the dollar because they just needed it off their books. They don't want to carry that bad debt, but they didn't need the money to function. And so That's not the case anymore, but the patient responsibility experience, it just still hasn't been optimized. And we see, you know, some of these practice management systems have started to build in like digital billing and things like that, but you can tell it's like a side product of their like main thing. And so it's just kind of crammed in there and it's, everything is still very optimized for insurance providers, which Mm -hmm. isn't understandable to, you know, the average patient or even to providers. Like I talk to providers and they're like, we don't even understand the bills that we send. And so (laughs) it's like- A lot of the systems are probably created before a lot of the people that work at the insurance companies were even born. So they're just like, I don't know, this, this is all, you know, Greek to me. What's your hiring philosophy? Who are you looking to add to the team over the next six months? Yeah. So, I mean, our entire team is made up of people that came through cold Twitter DMs, um, yeah. mostly mostly inbound. Um, nice. So my, my hiring philosophy is like, I want to hire people who want to work with me and who want to like work on solving this problem. God, my team is so good. It's like, I sometimes I'm worried that like, they're going to realize that they're all smarter than me. And I, I was talking to a teammate earlier who he had messaged me just to tell me another one of my teammates was great. And I was like, Yeah, I know. I'm pretty sure like the success of this company and like my contribution to it is going to like just be that I hired really, really incredible people. But they were there were people who wanted to work on this and there were people who wanted to work with me. And so, you know, they knew what they were getting when they signed up. I like we'll talk about that a bit, but like I lead a very public life. And so everyone knows what they're getting ahead of time. And I think that's made hiring really, really easy for us. We are starting to look at hiring another in-house engineer. We've we've kept a lot of our engineering outsourced to a team here in LA, but someone like very deeply embedded in the fintech space. Like I feel like we've got like the healthcare experience on our side and that's like plugging way super well, but like the fintech engineering is like a different ball game. That's awesome. Yeah. And I love the, the Twitter DM. I mean, look, my last two jobs both came through Twitter. So I'm a fan of that. I think, you know, someone I work with actually at Fast, Matt Kobach, has this great line where Twitter can be a lighthouse for like minded people. So you fire off the tweet around the $44 medical bill and like all these people that are interested in this problem or it resonates or they want to help solve it either on the team side or the investor side or the customer side come into your orbit. 
so for all of Twitter's obvious flaws, which we don't need to discuss, like that is <laughs> kind of a magical thing to be able to send the bat signal out and get a response like that. One thing that I thought was really cool about your story as a founder when we talked uh, earlier on in the year was this product design background. I think that there's not enough product design or designer founders in general. I'm obviously a marketer, but I'm a marketer who really appreciates design because everything that I put out into the world, almost everything um, on the marketing side has a visual language to it. Like we use yeah. that to tell stories. And so I'm a big believer in design. And I think having a product design background is a superpower, but how did you get into product design and, and talk about how that relates to your role now as a founder? Yeah. So I graduated high school a year early with two years of college done and went to school for political science. And so I was 19 when I was getting ready to finish and it was time to start applying to law schools. And I just didn't feel ready. I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. I, I had spent so much of my life working so hard, like insanely hard from like second grade on that I was just like, I need a break. And so I was like, I'm not going to apply to law school right now. I'm going to drop out of college. I'm going to move to Los Angeles and I'm going to like spend six months or a year figuring out what I actually want to do. I also hate paperwork. And so like the thought of being a lawyer stopped making any sense to me. Like, I don't, I'm still not really sure what I was thinking, but I was always very, very interested in politics. And so I'm happy that I have that education and that seems to become like more and more useful. I'm also a recovering poli-sci major who went into marketing. Amazing. Go figure. I, was, <laughs> I, I wasn't even going to go to law school because my dad's a lawyer and he's like, the world doesn't need more lawyers. Trust me. Yeah. So I moved to LA and within a few weeks, my dad was like, you need to get a job. And I was like, first of all, I don't even know you. You're like acquaintance to me that I'm living in your house. Like, I don't know why you're going to try to parent me right now. And two, I'm not getting a job. And he was like, okay, you have a week to get a job or I'm going to get you an application from the tanning salon I go to. And later in my story, I actually do end up working at a bunch of salons, but uh, I was like, okay, I'm not doing that. And my stepmom was a web designer and she was just like, listen, do some freelance work for me. It'll be enough to get your dad off your back. You can still sleep until noon if you want, like whatever, just do this little stuff. But I, you know, I take everything too far. So even though she was like really trying to give me a break, I was like designing all the time. And every project that came in that she was like, I don't know if I'm going to take this. I'd be like, I'll take it. And that's, that's how I got started. And then I moved up to Seattle kind of on a whim. Like I think I decided like July 1st, I was going to move to Seattle and move there on the 3rd. And I took a 48-hour contract on a Microsoft project and I stayed there for 18 months and the rest is kind of history. Wow. That's awesome. You mentioned Twitter a, a couple moments ago. One thing I really like is you're just very real, almost like vulnerable on Twitter. Like you said, you kind of just like put it all out there. And so people kind of know what they're getting. It's funny, right? Because there is all this chatter about building in public and someone's probably like, hey, you're building in public. You're like, I wasn't yeah. thinking of it that way. But just talk about the either conscious or subconscious decision to not only as just a person, but also as a founder to be very open and transparent about your story. I think you've done this when talking about fundraising. And I think managing your psychology as a founder, which everyone knows these are challenges every founder faces, but founders are transparent to different degrees. Some founders sure. want to act like they have it all together. And I, I think it's more endearing when people just say it how it is, but talk about that and, and how you kind of arrived at that position. Yeah, no, I, I definitely didn't know anything about like the building and public trend. And that term had not even crossed my radar until I was building in public. But yeah, I don't know. Twitter for me, I've been on Twitter for over a decade now, and it has been my like most used social media. And also the one that like none of my friends follow me on it. Like none of my like family knows about it. It's very much my thing. And so I've always treated Twitter kind of like a, just like a journal or a note keeping app of like what's going on in my life at that time. And you know, there's definitely repercussions for it. And I, I would say it's not for the faint of heart. Mostly I forget that this is like, thousands of people yeah, follow me like I just like last night I was I was on like a real chair and I like woke up this morning with like a bunch of DMs and I was yeah. like oh yeah people like read this and there are people who take yeah. me seriously I had I actually one o'clock in the morning my phone goes off and one of my employees texted me which was weird and it's a screenshot of one of my tweets and it said CEO I'm working for. And I went, <laughs> yeah, I went, yeah, that's me. And he was like, oh my God, I meant to send that to one of my friends. <laughs> that's hilarious. Like, cool. Like, I hope you're saying that it's like fun working for me or something, but right. yeah, I, I just, 
I put it all out there. Well, also like I should know there's definitely parts of my life. I like don't tweet about, and I'm yeah, like very course. conscious of like other people's privacy. Like I yeah. seem to not care much about mine, but I'm like very conscious of like other people's privacy yeah. and tend to keep like my dating life and stuff like totally off the internet. Yeah, that's that's wise. I think obviously it's had benefits in, on the company building side, just given the early recruiting success. So I think you should keep keep doing it as long as as long as it's working. We talked a little bit ago also about accredited investor rules. Actually, in the last episode, I had the CEO of Angelus Venture Avalok on the podcast, and we were talking about the same topic: how you know restrictive and and kind of awful some of these accredited investor rules are in terms of you know if you care about wealth inequality or increasing opportunity for more people saying oh you need an arbitrary level of wealth to be sophisticated enough to invest in a startup like peachy seems kind of ridiculous especially with crowdfunding platforms like the one that you used can you talk a little bit more about how you decided to make that part of your seed round? Like you were very intentional and very clear that like, okay, great. I'm going to have all these investors, some angel investors, some larger investors, but I want to carve out an allocation for folks that are writing smaller checks. Just talk a little bit more about that because I think that's a really great trend and I definitely want to see more of that. Yeah. I mean, in a lot of ways, for me, it was a way to validate my idea. It's one thing for a billionaire to write a check for $100,000. Like that's them. Just, it doesn't impact their life whatsoever. But when you have someone who's not wealthy and is willing to write you, you know, a $1,000 check or a $500 check, that's huge. It's like, oh, okay. Like these people actually believe this would be useful to them and useful to other people and could go somewhere. So a lot of it was that like idea validation also in general. And I won't dive into like all of the ways I feel this way, but like, I just don't like overly regulated stuff. And I found... I found the fundraising process to be very overly regulated. And so I went back to figure it out. Like, I'm like, why is it like this? And it's like, you're telling me these went into effect during the Great Depression. So the people didn't get ripped off. The Securities Act of 1933 before they're like... like any internet. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, and we've, we've never revised that. I mean, Obama had like put some stuff in place and took the SEC a while to catch up. But like, yeah, for me, it was like, fuck off when people yeah, have yeah. like overly regulated stuff. Oh, and it's I'm so like, ridiculous. I'll figure, I'll figure a workaround to this. I had one person message me who was like, I really want to invest, but I'm not an accredited investor, but like I could go take this test, but I don't know if I can get it done by then. And I was just like, yeah, like the series seven, like they're going to go to series seven just to invest in your company. It's insane. Yeah. So it was part of it. And then that gatekeeping wealth generation is very frustrating to me. To me, it blurs this line of like income equals intelligence. Like people seem to think like, you know, these people aren't educated enough enough to invest in these companies. And it's like, that's not the case. I trust people to be able to make their own decisions as adults. And like, yes, there are some people who probably make terrible investment decisions, but like very rich people do that as well. Of so, course. Um, well, and, and yeah, like the lottery and all these things that we like people are free to do that are by definition, bad investments. It's, it's fair game, but investing in a startup that maybe they personally experienced the pain point, or they have some kind of an insight into, you know, there's no correlation between that level of insight and their current bank balance. It's, it's so ridiculous. Yeah, you I'm, could have lost all of your money to GameStop and it would have been perfectly legal. Totally. Like, you try to do it with an early stage startup and they're like, you can't do that. <laughs> totally. No, I'm, we're totally in agreement there. Okay. For this next section, I'm kind of doing this thing, like turn the tables where like you're temporarily the host. I'm the guest. You can fire off any question that you want. I obviously don't know exactly what's coming and that's part of the fun of it. But if there's a question you want to ask me, fire away. I guess I, I didn't realize this was like, I could ask anything. I was going well, to try to I keep mean, this pretty, you know, pretty on topic. But... It's got to be somewhat PG. This is like a pretty, you know, pretty uh, <laughs> vanilla podcast. No, no, no. But I mean, from your experience, I know when me and you first started going back and forth on like, if you were going to invest or not, like you said, like you had personal experience with this, like, is that what it was for you? I'll just be honest. There's so much deal flow going on and everyone wants to talk about how like any startup could raise money right now. And sometimes I get in my head and I'm like, maybe you have a terrible idea and are a terrible founder. And like, you just happen to raise at the right time. And then I look at the data. I'm like, that actually doesn't apply to women founders at all. But like, what was it for you that was like, this is something I would like to invest in, like out of a, yeah. a brand new fund? Yeah, I think that's a great question. First off, I think 
there's this sense that there's just money everywhere spilling into the economy. And so it's very frothy and everyone's raising money. I don't think that's actual reality. I think for companies with strong founders or founders that are perceived to be strong and attacking a really great opportunity, the fundraising happens rather quickly, but there's a lot of folks where it's not happening at all still. So I think that's a bit of a misnomer that, oh, it's really easy to raise money. And it's, it's certainly not. And it might be incrementally easier than say a year or two years ago, but it's not easy at all. So I kind of reject a little bit of the premise of what's maybe going around on Twitter. When you're investing at the pre-seed stage, you're mostly investing in people. And when it's a single founder like yourself, I know you have a co-founder now, but back then you're investing in a person. And so a lot of it is, what is this person like? Would this person be able to sell a first employee to join the company or to sell a first customer to take a leap of faith on a, a product that's just getting built? And so I think that's what resonated first was your ability to tell a story around a problem that for sure myself and almost everybody I know has experienced to some degree, which is again, a broken, also highly regulated healthcare system. Yeah. And so the fact that the pain point was something that resonated with me personally, but it was your ability to articulate a vision around the product. And since you're a product designer, just the belief that you could create it, that you could take that product from zero to one. I think that those were some of the main reasons. I think there's always something intangible, right? You just kind of have this sense that this is worth investing in. You don't know what the future is going to hold and, and who knows what the future holds for any company, but that this is, uh, this is someone worth betting on. So that's kind of, I think, the, the short version of what quickly ran through my mind. It was a quick conversation. It was a quick decision. I think I decided the next day or two days later yeah. to invest. Yeah. I will say you've been like one of the most active investors on my cap table. Every time I'm like, Hey, like, I don't know how to do this thing or how, like, what should I do here? You just like respond back or like loop this person in. And then you just hand me, I think you helped me. <laughs> Thank you. I was like, I don't know what a go-to-market strategy is for like here to start with this. And yeah. now we have like a whole, now there's like a whole notion doc and it's broken down into sections. It's like really come together, but yeah, very appreciative for that like early help where I was like, I don't even know what these people are asking me for. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And sometimes I don't even know what the answer is, but I know someone who might know the answer. And so that's yeah. maybe where I can be helpful. And I think part of what I like is I just think there's something magical, borderline miraculous about seeing something go from zero to one. I think that yeah. I look back at my career and I have, I started a company in college, but I haven't been a founder myself for the better part of a decade plus. But whether it's joining early stage companies and helping founders on the marketing side, it's just magical to watch these zero to one moments. And it's just sheer creation. It's almost like art, right? You're starting yeah. with that blank canvas. And I'm so into that, that just being able to invest on the side and do my day job is having my cake and eating it too, because I get to build totally. my day job. You know, I, I don't know if I'd be a good investor full-time, time will tell. I don't even know if I would want to do it, but it's so invigorating and energizing for me to get to meet founders like yourself and just hear about how you're thinking about building a company, but also marketing and kind of expand my perspective that I feel like I'm lucky to be, you know, on your cap table or any founder's cap table, not not the other way around. But anyway, we could talk about that for a long time. <laughs> These are questions that I ask every guest and you can take them in any direction that you want, which okay. is kind of cool. I think this question was popularized by Peter Thiel. It's like the famous interview question, which is supposed to be hard to answer, but what's something that you believe that most people don't? Yeah, it's funny. I was I was in New York a few weeks ago and someone asked me like, what's your most cancelable opinion? And so I was thinking about this, but like, and I have probably a lot of them depending on who you run my opinions by, but I, I don't know. I encourage people to do free work and I understand the level of privilege that comes with that and like that it's exploiting. And like, as a founder, I'm like not asking anyone to do free yeah. work except for like, actually when I first started and I had no money, people yeah. reached out to me asking for jobs. And I was like, I have no money. And they were like, can I help you anyways? And I was like, yeah. So in some ways, I, I guess I did. Those people now are on payroll, yes. um, but they like believed in it early on. So I don't know. I encourage people to do free work and I like, uh, yeah, I do understand why that's not popular, but it's, it's for sure how I got where I am. Mm. Yeah. I'm a big fan of cancelable opinions. So I like <laughs> when those get shared on the podcast. I agree. I think that if I look at 
earlier on in my career when I was trying to get a job, you know, a lot of what I would do is exactly that. I would just start thinking through marketing challenges for the company and just start emailing ideas to the CEO or whatever. And it's free in one sense. And you're right, like not everyone's in a position to do it, right? You have to have time, you have to have the space to be able to, to do it. But when it's targeted and if you're trying to land a job, you can't do free work for 30 companies. That doesn't make sense. But if there's sure. something that really resonates that you have a unique perspective on or a unique level of interest and excitement around, I think doing free work can be very, very high leverage. And I think that it's something that people should consider, right? As a strategy to get where they want to go. Like the folks that did some free work for Peachy, you know, now they're employees, right? Now maybe they have equity in the company. And so yeah. I've always felt that that, you know, financial compensation, particularly in the startup realm, but in lots of different realms is very often a lagging indicator, right? What you're learning, the value you're providing, what you're sharing with other people and doing that upfront is kind of the leading indicator. And if you do that enough, not in all cases, but in many cases, the other pieces will catch up to that. Obviously, there's a lot of nuance. Like a great example yeah. is like there was an article about how, and I was a White House intern back in back in the day. I don't want to date myself too much, but they don't pay White House interns. Now that is ridiculous because it's like then only the people whose parents can either foot the bill or they can like take out a loan can send their kids to DC. That's garbage. Yeah. Like pay the White House interns. We're, we have $22 trillion of debt. Like paying the interns yeah. is not going to break the bank. That's a little bit of a different point. But when you're trying to break into a company or break into startups or tech, I think just putting yourself out there and providing some values highly underrated. Yeah. It's, it's. I mean, I needed, I needed a portfolio. Like I yeah. needed, I needed to show something and it's like, it wasn't something I did in college. That's not what I studied. And so it was just, who can I convince to let me do free design work for them? So I had something to show. And those people ended up being the people who then referred paying clients. And then I had a better portfolio and I still do free work. At this point, I can be really selective about it. And there's causes I care about yeah. and I can but I did. It's funny. One of the people who shared my deck around is someone who was like working on like a COVID tracker something and their website was terrible. And I like redesigned it in a night and I sent it to him. And that person ended up sending my deck around to people and also sent me a version of their first offer letter. Cause I was like, I need to hire this person, but I don't have an offer letter. And they're like, yeah. here you go. And I'm like, oh yeah, I just like randomly built that guy a website in a night. Yeah. You know, Silicon Valley has a lot of pluses and minuses in people's heads when they hear the phrase Silicon Valley. And, and it's much less a place, much more of a philosophy and, and I think ecosystem <laughs> that exists apart from the Bay Area. But one thing that I think is legitimately special about it, and I've noticed it over the last 10, 15 plus years working um, in, in tech, is there is this magical thing where people will help you without expecting anything in return, like genuinely. So many people have yeah. helped me throughout the last 10 to 15 years, and they just did it out of the kindness of their heart because someone had done that for them. And it does get paid forward over and over and over again. And there's something magical around that. And, and it happens to be very productive, right? Like someone gets a job at Stripe, let's say as an early employee, Stripe goes public. And let's say that person makes a lot of money like in some future IPO. Well, what are they going to do with that money? They're probably going to want to invest it in more founders, right? Or they're yep. going to want to start some nonprofit. So, and maybe it's not anything to do with money. Maybe it's just like you said, redesigning someone's webpage or giving them feedback on a resume. Those little things just compound and compound again and again. It's really hard to underestimate the power of that. And I think that's why when other countries are like, oh, let's create our own Silicon Valley. It's like, you have to create a culture where that's normal. Um, yeah. And so I think that's definitely a special thing about, about Silicon Valley, despite all its obvious flaws. Um, <laughs> what's a problem you're concerned about that most people aren't? Adolescent eating disorders. It's something no one seems to talk about. It's something doctors don't seem to have any education on. They have like half hour of training in med school on it, but it's the mental illness with the highest fatality rate. And the only successful treatment is when there's adolescent intervention. So like if you made it into your 20s with an eating disorder with no treatment, like your success rate going into recovery is so low that the DSM doesn't recognize it. So wow. for me, that that's like a big one. I, I did work with Seattle Public Schools and one of their alternative high schools and I do peer coaching. It's why I went and got certified as a holistic health coach. But yeah, that's a big one. That's awesome. That's a great answer. What's a problem that most people are concerned about that you aren't concerned about, or you think they pay too much attention to? Yeah, I don't know. I feel like 
every few days I open the internet and I see like a Time article or like New Yorker article or something where people are talking about the decline of the nuclear family as if that's like this really big problem. We saw that a lot during COVID. I just, it does not feel like a problem to me. I'm so excited about the future of families and what that looks like. And, you know, that people are really forging their own. And if you are someone who gets married and has kids and like, that's your life and you're super happy with it, that's incredible. And I'm happy that that's an option for people. But as someone who like lives with one of my best friends, who's like also an ex-boyfriend of mine and my kid's dad, who is now my best friend, we've been separated for years and we like raise our kid together and you know, our families come out and visit and help raise our kid. And we pass our kid to them for a month in the summer. Like to me, going back to this, like old school, it takes a village has really made it possible for me to feel like I like can have it all. Like when I first had Jack, I was like, you know, now I have to be a mom, but I don't really want to like put my career on hold. And how am I going to do it all? There's not enough hours in the day. And like, still, it doesn't feel like there's enough hours in the day. But the decline of the nuclear family and making other forms of family more socially acceptable has been really cool to watch and be a part of. I feel like we have by far one of the most functional partnerships I've ever seen. And so Go like, Scott, really, team Scott. Yeah, yeah, we, love, <laughs> we love Scott. He's, he should get like his own page on the website. Like, he really people, should. Like, accept like awards and like thank their people. It's like, actually he gets like an acknowledgement page, like 100%. thanks to Scott. But yeah, that's something that people, every time I read it, people seem very concerned about it. I'm like, this is good guys. Like, I don't, why is everyone worried? Well, and even if you have a traditional worldview, right? I think what a lot of people miss about the, the rise of the nuclear family was all the things that we lost. Even if you go back in time, right? It used to be, you know, people grew up in towns and it was aunts and uncles and brothers. Yeah. And, you know, you got sent to grandma's house and this is kind of the world. My wife grew up in Merced, which is in California, but it's two, three hours away in the central Valley. It might as well be a totally different world than San Francisco or LA. Yeah. And just being around aunts and like, like going to grandma's house and that more communal sense of family, that broader sense of family than just an atomized group, you know, one sibling, two parents, you know, maybe you live far away from friends and family. I think there's been a lot of damage to that living kind of yeah. more and more atomized lifestyle. And I think what COVID showed us too, with everyone being quarantined in their houses for the better part of a year is the cost, the social cost, the psychological cost of really being atomized. Humans are not meant to be alone yeah. at, to that degree. So I think there's, that's, that's a really good answer. Okay. The last question, what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Yeah. So for years, I have answered that question the same way. And now I have to revise my answer. But a boss once told me I was working on this Microsoft project and I was losing my mind. And he went, nobody has ever died because a website didn't launch on time. Now being in like the healthcare space, I'm like, that doesn't apply to me anymore. So I, I grew up my mom had me when she was 19, single mom. My grandma helped watch me. We lived next door to my great-grandparents. My great-grandma's name was Peaches, uh, which <laughs> Peachy. Yeah, I already have, I have a tattoo on the back of my arm of Peaches that I got for her a long time ago. So it's all come, kind of coming back together. But she always said, like, do what you can with what you have where you're at. And I think, I don't know, maybe Eleanor Roosevelt said it before her or someone. But that's what I go back to. It's what I go back to every day. I love that. That's great. Yeah. If Eleanor Roosevelt said it, that's fine. But your grandma popularized it and she made it, <laughs> she made it relevant to you. So that's all that matters. Yeah. I think that's good advice for all of us. I think that's a really, really good point. Well, this has been an awesome conversation. Super enjoyed it. One of my favorite conversations that I've had so far. If folks want to get connected with you, maybe they want to join the company. Maybe they want to refer someone who would be a great fit for your open engineering role or any of the other roles. Maybe they're wanting to invest in whenever that next round happens. I have no <laughs> idea. Maybe they want to be a customer. What's the best way for them to get in touch with you? Yeah. So if you're someone who wants to reach me directly, I'm on Twitter at hot girl in tech. I can be reached there pretty much any hour of any day. Um, and if you're okay, reaching my VA my email is lex at ptpay.com. Awesome. Well, this has been super fun and can't wait to share it, but thanks for making the time. This has been great. Yeah, thank you. We appreciate you taking the time to join us for this episode of the Paradox Podcast. We're aiming for commute length conversations with original thinkers that will push your perspective and pull you into the marketplace of ideas. 
If you're new to the podcast, we encourage you to check out our previous episode. For episode number 16, I chatted with Avlock Coley, CEO of Angelus Venture, about how the startup ecosystem is changing, the geographic future of Silicon Valley, and the rise of rolling funds. What do you think, though, are some of the common traits that make a good fund manager? You've seen a lot of data. You probably see some of the best data in the world on this. What are some of the common traits, despite all of those different strategies that they're all deploying? I would say the most common trait is they have a very strong network and judgment and are constantly looking to be very helpful to founders. And the reason that ends up being very, very important, it's all related, right? When you have this group or this cohort of people that are starting rolling funds, you have these founders, you have these operators. You know, the reason founders choose them is because they're bringing a very specific skill set to the company to help amplify the company. And that skill set, that can be quite varied, right? So that there's just no commonality in what the skill set is. Like in your case, uh, you'd be bringing in the marketing mindset, right? Really helping a company accelerate that piece. For Sahil, it can actually be the product mindset, right? That's actually where he, he thrives. But the common theme that we've seen is just the sheer helpfulness of the fund manager to make sure that the company is successful and they can get to the next stage. Now, obviously what happens as a company grows, they, they get a lot less use out of the early investors. That's natural for all companies as they grow. They're just different set of problems uh, to solve for. But at the earliest stages, at pre-seed, seed, you're really just trying to solve for a product market fit. And then you're pulling in your investors to help with any you know, recruiting or helping with any product feedback or marketing. And you're really looking for the right group of investors to bring together. And what we're seeing is that the rolling fund managers are that group of investors. They, they are the helpful people. They're the ones that actually were writing their own personal checks into companies and now starting the funds to amplify the check size. So going back to what you said earlier, where you were writing smaller checks, well, guess what? Your check size just got amplified because you have a rolling fund. Saho was the same thing. He was writing smaller checks. Same behavior, well, just got amplified because now he's writing larger checks. So that's the common trade. You have these folks who were writing smaller checks are now able to amplify it but they still bring with them that same common trait of like, great, I'm here to help. I'm going to dig in. I'm really going to help you make your company successful. That's a wrap for this episode of the Paradox Podcast. If you'd like to connect, you can follow me on Twitter at Kyle Tibbetts. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and review us on iTunes to spread the word. And until next time, take care of yourself. Hey, thanks for sticking around a few extra seconds. Just wanted to reiterate that if you're an early stage founder and you're in the process of fundraising, my seed fund Paradox Capital is actively investing in founders all over the country and in fact, all over the world. The plan is to invest in at least 12 founders this year, probably many more next year. Just head over to paradox.vc to learn more and I'd love to chat. Take care.